Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to uh, Zechariah chapter 10. And it's a passage which is entitled, The Lord Will, will Care for, for Judah. And it's familiar enough sort of imagery that is used within this passage. It's, if your page numbering in the Pew Bible in front of you is the same as mine, it's page 955. And let's hear God's word. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It's the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every other ruler. Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them, and they will put the enemy horsemen to shame. I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I have not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. The Ephraimites will become like warriors and their hearts will be, as, will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and will gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them amongst the peoples, yet in distant lands, they will remember me. They and their children will survive and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and will gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there will not be enough room for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down and Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will live securely, declares the Lord. And we thank God for his, his word and, and praying that the Lord would, would add his blessing upon it. I say that, it's almost a wee bit rote uh, and routine. I really do need uh, the Lord to be able to, to help me. It's, I don't think it's, I can purely put it down to COVID brain at times. I think it's just the brain of a, a, a 50-something guy, uh, which doesn't move as quickly as it used to, because this passage I sort of struggled with all week and wondering where I was going to go with it. Uh, but when I was, was off, uh, doing not much when I had COVID a little while ago, I was able to watch a little bit of the Paralympics and if some of the, the people have been... Mine goes out here to, to Catherine who had the, 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 the accident when she was skiing. And it, imagine seeing some of these people who, who have been skiing. And it's hard enough to imagine how you can really lean into, into that sort of hillside and the energy with which you ski and you speed and almost with reckless abandon as you make your way uh, down that slope. But to be able to do that, 
not only when you're fully abled, but when you are disabled in, in some way or not able to have a full control of, of, of all of your limbs or your sight. Uh, the one in question, of course, in the downhill slalom in that situation uh, is someone who can hardly see in front of them. And they really rely on a guide who is skiing out a little bit in front of them. And as I watched people doing that and the, and the energy with which they sort of entered into that and the fearless resolve that they had as they went, went for it and, and careered down uh, th- that hillside is a truism which I'm going to come uh, back to get time and again as in many ways a guide that's going to lead us through this passage but it's simply reminding is that where you end up will depend on who it is that you are following and, and that's something that we will all know through life and know the, the importance of that and the Bible you will know when it talks so often about following and leading is that it uses the imagery of a shepherd and, and his sheep and that's uh, an image that certainly does appear uh, right the way through chapter 10 into chapter 11, which we're going to be thinking about next week. And in chapter 11 specifically, it's got this idea of the two shepherds. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a voice that you should be listening to, a good voice, a one that you should be following and honoring and going in that direction. And then there's, then there's, a, then there's those other voices, the bad shepherd, uh, as it were. And that contrast is, is evident even in chapter 10. If I get you to read with me in verse 2, where the negative contrast, instead of speaking, listening to the right voices, uh, those negative voices are verse 2. It says, The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. And therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Uh, when it talks about idols there, it's a bit of a hang-on for these people from Babylonia. Uh, in Babylon, they would have had little tiny middle mini idols, uh, household gods, as it were, and the people would have been looking and praying to these to bring blessing on the home. Uh, the, the term that they used to refer to these were the teraphim, and it's a, it's a, it is a hang-on for these people. They evidently brought them from Babylon, and so Zechariah is speaking to the people of his day and bluntly he is, he is telling them is that these things, of course, don't work. And so as I'm using as a backdrop that message, which hopefully is in front of us at where you end up, it depends on who you will be following. Uh, it's a reminder that we only, there only is one message in this passage. And it is simply this, and this is what I'm going to come back to time and time again, is that truly, definitely, sincerely, we only have one leader. And that Jesus is the only leader that we have. There is only one voice that we should be listening to, and that voice is Jesus. And every other voice that we will be listening to will lead to our our downfall. So the only authentic voice, the only real strong leader that we should be listening to is Jesus himself. And so as we use that as our focus, as we apply that to our lives and what happens to us day by day, I could ask the question is, well, what do you do nine to five? Uh, We've had Ruth up here at the front and and she has been talking about what that impact is for her. And as we think about our lives, if we had been up here and what it means to follow Jesus in that context, uh, how you interact with your mates, how you, you 
carry out your job day to day, what priorities you actually adopt, what are the things that are important to you in life, what's the legacy that you want to leave behind you. Those are, are, that's the lens, as it were, with which we can approach this little statement is that where you end up will depend upon who you are following. It also could apply to us as a church, that of course where we end up as a church will be determined by how closely we are listening to that one clear, authentic voice of Jesus, or whether it is that we are listening to other voices because there will always be other competing voices that we do listen to, that we are tempted to listen to, whether it's as a church or whether it is individually. And we will, of course, at times try to justify the choices that we make. We will justify what we have done. We will justify the priorities that we adopt and we will try and say that those are always the right things. But where we end up will always depend on who it is that you're really following. So as we jump into this passage, and how does this passage open? Uh, There's one big statement there. One big challenge, and this is where I find this passage quite uh, deeply, personally challenging because it's reminding me that what I really need to do, of course, is to ask God, the one who is able to answer these prayers, as that we actually need to ask and to pray about things. Verse one, ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It's the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all the people. You know, in the Near East, there are two main seasons of rain. There's the autumn and the spring rains. Normally, it talks about the two of them always in tandem. This time, it's just mentioning the, the, um, the spring rains. It would have been the autumn, would have caused the germination of the seed, and it's the spring rains that really brings the maturity so that the plants can grow and be ready for, for harvesting. But the the real point of what this verse is really getting at is pretty obvious, isn't it? That if you want to know the blessings of God, then you've got to ask. You've got to ask the Lord for the rain in the springtime. And as Zechariah was addressing the people of his day, he simply would have asked them, do you want to know the blessing of God? Well, then he says, you've got to pray. And that question could address us in exactly the same way. Do you want to know the blessing of God in your life, in your church? Well, then you have got to pray. So the, the challenge here is that you actually ask. And even though it seems so straightforward and so obvious, I don't think that we're really convinced are we? And if we're not asking, we're missing out. And it's even more important when you remember words of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said things like, without me, you can do nothing. So if we really believed that, we would be asking. And the encouragement to pray becomes so apparent when you actually 
follow the life of Jesus and see that it becomes a priority in Jesus' life. Recently, I've been reading in some of the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And yet, I remind myself of the priority that comes from seeing what Luke says about Jesus and prayer. And if there was anybody who could skip the odd prayer, it was Jesus being the very Son of God. And yet the one thing that becomes really apparent is that prayer was important to him. Using Luke as a bit of a template and thinking about how that summarizes the life of Jesus, we can see that before Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter 3, he prayed. Before, as Jesus' ministry was beginning to grow and people were coming near to him, we read in Luke chapter 5 that he prayed. Before he actually chose his first disciples, he spent the night in prayer whenever he was beginning to really teach them and to lead them. And he asked them that very significant question whenever his ministry was growing to the extent and he asked his disciples, who do the crowd say I am? Before Jesus asked that, he, he prayed. And after his disciples made that wonderful statement and they said that we know that you are the Christ, it says that Jesus then withdrew. He went up on a mountainside to pray. As he anticipated his death, whenever he was going into uh, uh, Gethsemane, we know that what he did is that he prayed whenever he was on the cross, whenever he was, whenever the nails were literally being driven into his arms and into his hands and into his legs. We know that he prayed whenever he was uttering his final breath. What did Jesus do? Is that first of all, he prayed for those who were doing it, prayed forgiveness, but that finally as he died on the cross, he prayed. And so as Luke shows that, and all those examples and the importance of what it is to pray, the challenge comes to us. Why do you think you don't need to pray as much? Why do you think, why do I think that I can get by just myself? And so the challenge, I think, for myself, the challenge for us as a church, is exactly because what was essential for Jesus what was essential for the early church, for us, only becomes optional, is that we are not driven to pray in the same way. And the fact that other things take priority, the, other, the fact that we think we have enough strength in and of ourselves, that we can plan and that we can organize and that we can do shows that we are not committed to prayer in just the same way. So is it any wonder that church is entirely missable when it sort of lacks that vitality and the wonder of the presence of God because we're not asking God to actually bless and to be among us as we, as we meet? Is it any wonder that our, that our own lives don't brim full of the enthusiasm and that otherness that we, we read in the, in the lives of the early disciples who were so filled with a sense of who God was? Is it any wonder that God does not work through us in the way that we would want God to do at times. And the challenge here is, what is very obviously here, is that you ask the Lord for the rain in the springtime, verse 1. But you know, I've labored that point about encouraging us all to actually ask, but it's not even really the focus of what this passage is, because as I read this passage, the focus isn't simply on the asking, but the focus is on the God we ask 
And the only reason that you ask God for these things is because God is faithful and that God is good and that God is able to give you these things. So the focus in this passage isn't even on the asking, but it's on God himself. So we ask God who to send the rain because he is the one who can send the rain. And ultimately, as it looks forward, that there is one who is coming who will most clearly and most definitely be the one who will care and deliver us. And you see in verse four who this is because these phrases that are mentioned here are so familiar to us. But verse four, if you read it with me, it says, from Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. You you know that Jesus is the one, God is the one who's been described as the very cornerstone of the church, that he is the one who, that tent peg as it were, who who is able to enable the, the, the tent not to be blown away in the midst of the storm. He is the battle He's the one who gives us our strength and is our deliverer. And as you read on, turn the page to verses 6 and through to the end of chapter 10, and you'll see a focus which repeatedly goes, I will, I will, I will, because the focus is on what God is able to do. Verse 6, I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of of Joseph. I will restore them. Verse 8, I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. Down to verse 12, I will strengthen them in the Lord. The focus is on God himself who has the power to do these things, which is a reminder of that little truism that I was mentioning a little while ago, where you end up depends on who you are following and how closely you are following. If Zechariah was to ask the people of his day, are you following God? They would say, yes, we have left Babylon and we've arrived back in Jerusalem. We gather at the temple. We meet here week in, week out. We are doing what we feel God wants us to do. And yet the problem seems to be is that they didn't fully and completely rely upon God. They were not so devoted to God that they could see that they really needed to ask God to show, by, to show their dependence upon God by asking for these things. And if we move two and a half thousand years further and we arrive today and Zechariah were here and he were to ask that question, do you fully, completely rely on God? What would be your answer? And the thrust of this passage then is, do you really follow Jesus? Does Jesus set the agenda for your life? So think about your life and what it means day by day, the the nine to five agenda, the things that you really are passionate about, the things that that are important to you, what you place your value on, even what we do as a church, can we say that Jesus sets our agenda here in this place? I've already mentioned that I was been reading through in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of some of the people whom Jesus addressed in those early chapters of Luke. Whenever he went up to his first disciples and he challenged them, and the first thing that he said to them was to leave your nets, leave all that was familiar and come and follow me. 
Or what about the, the other guy that Jesus asked to come and follow him and his first reaction was, but I can't, I need to first go and I need to say bye-bye to my family. And Jesus says to him, no, if you're going to follow me, you're going to do it now. You haven't got time to do those other things because following me is the first call upon your life. How would you respond to Jesus in those moments? Would you say, well, I want to follow you, but do I really need to follow you completely and fully to that extent, to the extent that I can't even have time to go and do other things? And the reality, I think, for all of us, myself, yourself, is that we would rather have a Jesus that we can control, a Jesus who doesn't expect so much of us, a Jesus who is easier to live with, a Jesus who actually doesn't demand too much from us. He's not going to ask too much of our time. A Jesus who understands the pressures that I face at the minute to the extent that Jesus isn't going to demand that I immediately follow him now, but is quite happy to wait until I get a better handle on what's going on in my life. And when I've got those things sorted, then Jesus is ready to listen to me. Or a Jesus who is happy with me only being nominal in my devotion. And the priorities that I've established for my life, the things that are important for me, these are the things that will represent my life and Jesus just needs to fit around them. But you know, that's our attitude. You're not following Jesus. You're following something you've made up yourself that's only colored with a little bit of Jesus. You know the way if you go into a restaurant and you ask for a jug of juice and sometimes what come you couldn't call orange juice, it's only colored water. And you would have been better still just drinking the plain water because whatever has been added certainly does not make anything palatable. So if we're going to be following Jesus, I remind you of that statement which is behind me, which is truly to remind ourselves is that where we end up depends on who we are following, and how, for that matter, we are following. This passage, chapter 10, while it's a bit of an aerial view that I'm doing, it does remind me of the challenge of following Jesus, this one who cares for me, this one who loves me, particularly, perhaps, even if I look down to verse 8. And if you look with me at verse 8, there's a promise here. And it's taken from the shepherding image. In verse 8, it says, I will signal for them and gather them in. And the Hebrew phrase that's used there is used lots of places in the, in the Old Testament. It's used in the book of Judges. It's used a couple of times in, in Isaiah. And literally what it's saying is that I will whistle for the sheep. And it's listening to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling for these people. And it's important to know the context right now for these people that Zechariah was speaking to. Zechariah, he was speaking to a people who had already left Babylon. They had already left the captivity and they were now standing in the promised land. He had in that sense already gathered those people 
It's not that he was gathering those people from the far distant. The people had already been gathered. But when you read verse 8, Zechariah speaking God's words to these people, the message is still future. And that future message is, is I will whistle for them and gather them in. So what we see in this passage, I believe, is not simply a backward message, but it's a future message. It's our future. We're, we have a promise here that God is saying is that I will signal for them, I will whistle for them, and I will gather them in. Now, we today live in a world that is broken, a world that is chaotic. You will be on the receiving end of people who have not kept their word to you. You will be on the receiving end of broken promises. You will be experiencing the negative aspects of life simply because you live nine to five in a broken world. You sometimes make poor decisions. You make decisions that impact and affect other people. You break your promises to other people. So it's not simply stuff out there. We make our own choices, and having made those choices, we need to lie in the bed that we have made ourselves. We make those choices ourselves, and it impacts other people. So this broken world is not simply something that we watch from a distance, but it is something that we inhabit. And so we need hope, and we need the promise of something better. And so this promise from God to care for us, this promise of God to whistle for us and to gather us, and we know that that is something that is our future and that we are part of. And even as I conclude, I simply want to read ultimately that final image of gathering when God will gather his people, when he will whistle for them and he will bring them together. It was another vision that was given to someone else. It was given to John in this, and it's written in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read from Revelation chapter seven and verse nine. And it says, and this, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And then going down to, to verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders asked me, These people in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And he answered, Sir, you know. In other words, I don't know. Just like Zechariah, he's struggling with understanding the meaning of these visions, what it's actually about, but the answer is given. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, and here's the promise and the hope for all of us. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. 
The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that so often we do need encouraged and we need the encouragement to survive. Never mind our distracted natures and the trouble that we face day in, day out, the worries, the anxieties, what we carry personally and then, Lord, at times when we look out upon this world that everything seems so hopeless. Lord, we need to remind ourselves again that where we end up depends on who we're following and the challenge to focus on you and to know that our strength, our salvation, our deliverance, it's solely in you. Lord, help us to remember that this week. When we're back at what we do Monday to Friday, whether we're still in employment or whether we're retired and we're occupying our days in in slightly different ways from before, whether we're simply involved in, in in our homes and in our communities and in our church, Lord, we want your priorities for us. We want to be used by you. We want to know your blessing, your goodness. We want to know, Lord, that you care for us and that you will care for others through us. Lord, show us Jesus, who is our one reliable, trustworthy guide. Amen.